You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of the murder of Jason Corbett. family was a typical one in the 70s and 80s in Ireland. There were a lot of them, six boys and two girls, with the youngest two being a set of twin boys, Jason and Wayne. They lived in a tidy estate outside of Limerick, Janesborough. It's a typical suburb of one of the smaller cities in Ireland, but when the family first moved into their home in the quiet cul-de-sac, the area was still decidedly countryside all through the eight Corbett children's childhoods. It was idyllic. After finishing school, Jason moved out of the family home. The Corbetts are very tight-knit, though, and rather than set out on his own completely, he moved in with his older sister, Tracy, and the man that would become her husband, Dave. The two young men became fast friends. Tracy Corbett Lynch went on to tell Jason's story in a book, My Brother Jason, and much of the information for this episode about Jason's life, and indeed the Corbett's, came from that work. In February of 1997, Jason met Mags, Margaret Fitzpatrick, through a childhood friend who worked with her at a children's play school. The two started dating officially in August of that year, and eventually they moved in together. To begin with, they took an apartment directly above where Tracy and Dave lived. The four of them would all hang around together and enjoyed being so close. And Jason and Mags were built-in babysitters for the other young couple, something they took on happily. They all adored one another. Jason proposed to Mags in 2002 in Barcelona, and they were married the next year, in June of 2003. Their family grew quickly. In September of 2004, the couple welcomed their son, Jack. And two years later, in September as well, they were joined by a little girl, Sarah. The family had by this stage moved into a bungalow they'd had built for themselves. It was their dream home. Jason had been promoted at work and had a successful career. It wouldn't be going too far to say that everything was wonderful for the young family, but tragically, that didn't last. Just 12 weeks after their little girl was born, on the 21st of November 2006, Mags had an asthma attack in her home. She had had asthma her whole life and had inhalers and nebulizers to help her when her chest would get tight, but that night, she woke Jason up and told him that she was having serious trouble breathing. She tried the medicine that she had, but it wasn't making a difference. It was still hard for her to catch her breath, and so Jason rang 999 in a panic. Being out in the countryside meant that the ambulance service would take some time to arrive out to the house, and so, as Mag's sister Catherine was also in the house that night, Jason put his wife into the family car 
and sped to meet the ambulance at an arranged spot. Mags fell unconscious as the car arrived at the meeting point. The ambulance was still on its way, but only minutes from their location. But these were vital minutes. Jason pulled the unconscious Mags out of the car and started CPR, and medics took over when they got there. They bundled Mags into the ambulance, continuing their efforts to clear Mags's airway and get her breathing. They headed straight for the local hospital, and Jason followed the ambulance, sirens blaring. But Mags had died en route. Family gathered around Jason after such a terrible loss. His siblings and Mag's family helped Jason as much as they could. Someone was always there with the kids and providing whatever support Jason needed. But by summer of 2007, Jason wanted to take control of his life, to be more self-reliant and to put a good routine in place for the kids. He started hiring au pairs to live in. They'd be the kids' nanny and do some light housework, which would take the pressure off Jason and the rest of the family who'd all been pitching in where they could. After a few false starts hiring young people who were looking to improve their language skills and then having them leave, Jason decided it would be better to look for someone more stable and decided to hire an English-speaking au pair. In February of 2008, an application came in for the position of an au pair from a 25-year-old American girl, Molly Martins from Knoxville, Tennessee. Her CV outlined her qualifications. She was a Montessori teacher, a graduate of Clemson University, and an Olympic-class swimmer. It seemed too good to be true, and Jason asked her to come and fill the position. She moved to Ireland on the 10th of March 2008, after a small hiccup. She had arrived here on a one-way ticket, and she didn't have a work visa. The one-way ticket raised red flags for officials working in Shannon Airport. Molly was refused entry by immigration and sent back to the U.S. that day. But Molly was a determined person. She flew to Boston, and when she landed, she bought another ticket, this time a return, and came back to Ireland via Dublin the next day. Soon she was at Jason's house, meeting four-year-old Jack and two-year-old Sarah who were to be her new charges. Initially, everything seemed good. Molly was quiet but kind and instantly devoted to the children. According to Tracy, Molly was a bit shy, maybe even aloof, and didn't give away many personal details when she initially met with Jason's family. But she was polite and good with the kids, and Jason seemed happy. So, so were the rest of them. Unbeknownst to Jason, Molly had literally just up and left her home and life in the States to take the job with his family. She had been living with a man she called her fiancé, Keith McGinn, who had no idea of her plan to leave. The two had been together for over a year, having met online and moved in together after just six weeks of dating. Keith would later tell the Irish Independent that Molly had suffered with her mental health while they were together and that she told him she had been diagnosed as bipolar. According to My Brother Jason, Tracy Corbett Lynch's book, Molly was actually an inpatient at a mental health facility just weeks before she moved to Ireland. 
Keith described how when Molly was on medication, she was a happy, fun person to be around. But unmedicated, she was a, quote, completely different person, end quote. They would fight often. Things never got physical, but Molly wouldn't ever let him walk away. Keith would try to go and take a walk to clear his head, and she would stop him. Keith described how Molly's mood changed dramatically after she suffered a miscarriage. He thought that they weren't ready for a baby, financially or emotionally, but Molly was devastated when they lost the pregnancy early on. After that, he said, Molly used him as a scapegoat for everything that was wrong in their relationship. In his interview with The Independent, Keith said that Molly had mentioned the idea of going to Europe and working as a nanny. He hadn't put much stock in the notion, though, as he said Molly was always coming up with plans like this and never followed through. But this time, she did. She had told Keith she was thinking about moving to Ireland for a few weeks to take up a nanny's job, and then she left. Ten days later, he got a Facebook message from her, and that was it. Molly never told anyone in Ireland about her ex-fiancé that she had effectively run out on. Nor did she tell anyone about her miscarriage, her bipolar diagnosis, or any other struggle with her mental health. A few short months after her arrival in Ireland, by May, it was clear to Jason's siblings that there was more to the relationship between their brother and his new employee, Molly. Jason's family were a bit worried. It was more the circumstances and the living arrangements that gave them pause when it came to Jason and Molly being together. She lived in the house and was intimately involved with the children, and it just made everything move so much faster than a normal dating relationship usually goes. They didn't really know Molly, nor did she seem particularly interested in making friends and getting involved in the wider family, and it was concerning. But Jason seemed happy, and so were the kids, and so no one said anything. The next month, however, Molly went home. Jason had told her that he needed time to think. Things had moved too fast for him too, it seems. He was finding it hard to set boundaries and the situation was complicated and stressful for him. He and Molly exchanged a number of emails during this time where Jason explained his position and his worries to Molly. Molly's responses were far more emotional than practical, saying that if Jason loved her, they should just be together. In hindsight, reading them now, they sound manipulative. Eventually, a month later in August, Molly came back to Ireland, but under conditions that she and Jason would separate out their lives. She'd get a job and they'd try and do things properly. But despite having arranged a place for her at the childcare provider that Mags had once worked for, Molly never got the job. She wasn't able to produce the qualifications required to work in the creche, and the matter seemed to be dropped from then on. The next major change for the new couple was a move. Molly convinced Jason to sell his house, saying that she felt as if she was living under Max's shadow and that they needed a fresh start as a couple. And so they moved. In 2010, Jason proposed to Molly on Valentine's Day at a local restaurant, and a wedding date was set for June the next year. The plan was to make the move to the U.S. at that time. 
Luckily for Jason, his company had a plant near Lexington, North Carolina, which was, in terms of distance within the States, relatively close to Molly's home in Knoxville, only a five-hour drive west. By this stage, though, Jason's family were beginning to worry. Of course, no one wants to see close family move so far away, but besides that, Molly's behaviour seemed to have changed. Where she was once quiet and self-contained, she was now very upfront about her feelings, which were mainly displeasure. She gave out to Jason about everything, and began to act very strangely when he'd choose to spend time with anyone besides her, making it difficult for him to keep her happy and still see friends and family. When the wedding finally rolled around, things were tense. Molly was prone to throwing temper tantrums, which she made no effort to even conceal from the visitors and guests, and Jason was trying to keep things together. It was not helped by the mutual dislike that quickly became apparent between the two families. Molly's dad, Tom Martins in particular, was not fond of Jason, and he barely hid his dislike of Jason's family. He thought the Irish contingent he was now hosting were rude and cursed too much. And Jason's family felt the same about Molly and thought that they were treated fairly badly when they visited Knoxville for the wedding. During the wedding reception, Molly screamed at Dave Lynch and told one of her own bridesmaids to leave the party. Jason's sister recalled in her book that it appeared that the happy, caring, friendly Molly that they'd met in 2008 was gone. She was now demanding and given to hysterics, and, to make matters worse, in the weeks that the family were in the US, in the lead-up to the wedding, they heard that Molly had been telling disturbing stories to her friends and family in the US. Molly had told one woman that she and Mags had been pen pals, and that she'd promised Mags that she'd take care of the kids if anything was to ever happen to her. Another time, she told a friend that she'd been made the kid's godparent. One friend of her family was told outright that Molly was the biological mother of the kids, complete with stories about the pregnancy and labour Molly had had with her daughter. Paul, Jason's childhood friend, who was acting as his best man for the second time, told Jason the day of the wedding, and even up to the point where the ceremony actually began, that Jason could change his mind, that he didn't have to do this. But what Paul and the rest of the family didn't know was that Jason and Molly had been married already in a civil ceremony. This lavish fairy tale wedding was all for show, in more ways than one. And so, when the party was over, the Corbetts went about settling into their new lives in North Carolina. Jason completed his work transfer and took up his position as plant manager in Lexington and he bought the family a beautiful house in a gated community in Winston-Salem, about a 30-minute drive north of his work. Because of the sale of his family home back in Ireland, Jason was able to buy the house in cash, meaning that the family could live mortgage-free. As an added bonus, Molly was given tens of thousands of dollars to decorate the new home to her tastes, and was given a brand new car, too. But despite getting what she wanted, Molly wasn't satisfied. With the goals of the marriage and the move completed, she moved on to the next thing, the adoption of the two kids. 
She desperately wanted to be officially their mother, like she had told people she was. She even went to a lawyer shortly after the wedding to see what her rights would be in relation to the kids if she and Jason were to divorce. Molly was not pleased to hear that her parental rights were non-existent. And Molly wasn't the only one who had visited a lawyer in the months after their wedding. Jason went to a family lawyer too. He wanted to know, if he signed adoption papers with Molly, whether those rights would still be valid in the event that the couple divorced. They would be, he was told. Jason began keeping the children's passport in a safe deposit box, away from the house. While all of this was going on behind closed doors, it appeared as if the family had settled in to their new home and community. The kids started at local schools and daycare. Molly took up a part-time position as a swim coach at a local pool. Jason and Molly began to get to know their neighbours. Jason made friends with a number of the men on his street, and Molly would chat with the women on the road and the mothers of the kids' school friends. What Jason didn't know was that some of this conversation was about him. Molly began telling people that Jason drank too much and would fall into violent rages. She said he hit her, and she'd show bruises to back the story up. To many of the men who knew Jason, it didn't seem to add up, but then, often, these things never do. People didn't quite know what to make of it. What was actually going on in the Corbett household was quite different, though, as Tracy outlines in her book. Molly often hid things from Jason, just little things that he'd set down, like his keys. When he searched endlessly for things, she'd call him dumb. She was making him doubt himself, undermining his self-confidence. Molly also decided not to tell Jason about everything that was going on with the kids, and he often didn't get information about sporting events or extracurricular activities. The effect of this was that Molly would turn up on her own to something that Jason had no clue about, or had the wrong time for, and it looked as if Molly was doing everything for the kids on her own. She had even gone so far as to hide recording devices around the house, and had even put one in Jason's car, which was discovered by Jack weeks before Jason's death. Molly would later release some of these recordings, alleging that they were proof that Jason was abusive towards her, that he was the aggressor, and that he had started a fight that would ultimately lead to his death. You can hear the recording on both the 2020 and 48 Hours episodes, produced by American TV stations, ABC and NBC, respectively. From what's going on, it sounds as if the entire family is in the kitchen. Jason is trying to ask for the family to eat together, and Molly is ignoring him, talking over him, and addressing the kids. Eventually, Jason yells at her, possibly banging his hand down on a table or countertop, and both the kids can be heard screeching for the adults to stop fighting. Jason is undeniably the only one yelling on the tape, but without any further context, it seems more like yelling from frustration. He's yelling because Molly isn't listening to him when he tries to talk. She ignores him and talks over him, addressing the kids instead. Without listening closely, it might be easy to come away with the impression that Jason is the aggressor. But given that the audio is offered up of evidence of domestic abuse, it seems a bit of a stretch. 
The kids crying out at the end is of course heartrending, but that's what kids do when their parents yell at each other in their earshot. It happens. There were obvious tensions in the house. And on top of all that, Jason was also stressed about money. Despite the fact he had a good job and their house was paid off, Molly was running up huge bills. And to Jason, her spending was out of control. In fact, between January and August of 2015, Molly had spent $90,000. But in his interview with 2020, Tom Martins, Molly's father and a retired FBI agent, said that Jason told Molly what to wear and what to buy, and that he was controlling. By 2014, Jason seemed to realise that things weren't working. He brought up the idea of him and the kids returning to Ireland with family members in August of 2014, and then in December of 2014, according to Tracy's book, Jason invested a large sum of money in a childcare business in Limerick, alongside his childhood friend Lynn the one who had worked in the Montessori school with Jason's first wife, Mags. Tracy felt that this investment meant that if Jason suddenly arrived home, at least he'd have some source of income while he sorted things out. Jason mentioned the idea of a return a number of times to his siblings and to his best friend Paul. At no point did Molly seem to be part of that plan. By the summer of 2015, it seemed as if arrangements were starting to come together. The first weekend in August, Jason had been searching for flights to Ireland and had even begun the booking process on some of them. He'd also brought the kids' passports back to the house and had them with his own. At one point, they fell to the floor and Molly saw them before they were tucked back away. The sudden impetus to make the move may have come from an incident that occurred on the 1st of August. Jason and Molly had a fight while they were attending a cookout at a neighbor's house that Friday evening. Molly, according to witnesses, had been sort of teasing or jeering Jason, but harshly, basically calling him fat. Jason had gotten upset and left the house, walking home on his own. The next day, the kids said that their dad had told them that they were going to be going to Ireland soon, and that their dad had said he wasn't sure if Molly was coming when they asked. There were suitcases packed. It seems as if by that point, Jason had had enough. And so Saturday, the 2nd of August, with signs that Jason's patience was wearing thin and he was no longer willing to put up with erratic behaviour and being made out in a bad light constantly, Molly made a number of phone calls to her parents in Knoxville. They arrived, apparently unexpected and unannounced, that Saturday night to stay the weekend with the Corbetts. When Sharon and Tom Martins pulled into the driveway at Panther Creek Court, they found Jason sitting on a deck chair with his next-door neighbour, having some beers. The two men had sat there for a while after mowing their lawns together, talking. With the Martins' arrival, Jason went back into the house and they all had pizza for dinner. The adults had a few more drinks. And then everyone went to bed. What happened next is unknown. 
Tom and Sharon were staying in the guest bedroom of the house, which was located in the basement. When the police arrived to the Corbetts around half past three on the morning of the 3rd of August, Tom recalled that after going to sleep downstairs, he was woken by the sounds of a struggle above him. He told police that he had grabbed a bat, which was still lying by his bag, and ran up to the main floor of the house. The bat was a small, black, Louisville slugger Tom had brought down to the house as a present for Jack. When Tom got to the master bedroom, he said he found Jason with his hands wrapped around Molly's neck, and his son-in-law kept repeating that he was going to kill Molly. Jason was choking his daughter. Tom described how Jason moved about and ended up holding Molly's head in a headlock and began edging towards the bathroom. Tom swung the bat at Jason's head. He kept swinging until Jason was down, and then he said that he and Molly left the room and called emergency services. He said that although he and Molly had first aid training, they didn't try and help Jason until they were requested by the 911 operator to start CPR. Tom also admitted that night that it was well known he didn't like his son-in-law, but insisted that he was polite and friendly at all times with him. Sharon told police that she had been downstairs in the basement the entire time and saw nothing. Thankfully, the children both slept soundly through the eruption of violence. The 911 call had lasted 15 minutes. When paramedics arrived, they took over life-saving attempts, but they were to no avail. Police arrived shortly after to find a bloody mess in the Corbett's master bedroom, a shocked Molly standing outside in her pyjamas and a fur coat, and Tom Martins, wound tightly but cooperative. Initially, it looked like a case of straight-up self-defence. Molly was even told as much when she was interviewed by police, as can be seen in the recent 48 Hours episode on the case. When she spoke to the police, she echoed her father's story, that Jason had come at her. Molly said that the argument had started because Sarah had had a nightmare and had come downstairs to her parents' room. According to Molly, the kids weren't allowed to enter the master bedroom at night. She said Jason had told her they were too old for such coddling and so Sarah had stood outside the door whispering for Molly. Molly, of course, got up and tended to the girl, but when she got back to the bedroom, Jason had woken and was livid. She told the police that this was common in their relationship, that things had been getting progressively more violent between the two. And so, Jason had attacked her, forgetting her parents were downstairs, and her dad had heard the fight and intervened. Molly and Tom were brought to the police station to be questioned, and had their photographs taken, while the house in Panther Creek Court was secured as a crime scene and photographed. Meanwhile, a continent away, on the 3rd of August, while out walking, taking advantage of the long weekend in Ireland, Wayne, Jason's twin brother, got a call on his mobile. The call came just after 6pm and lasted only a matter of seconds. It was from Molly's mother, Sharon Martins. She told him that Molly and Jason had had a fight. Jason had fallen and hit his head, and he had died. Wayne asked to speak to Molly, but Sharon said he couldn't, and then promptly hung up. 
Wayne now had the job of walking into his parents' home and breaking the news that one of their sons was dead. Then he'd to call his sisters and tell them. Tracy was on holidays in France with her family. Wayne opted to ring her husband, Dave, so that she could hear the horrible news from someone face to face. After the devastation had washed over her, it was replaced with a steely resolve to do right by Jason and his two kids. Tracy would look after them and find out what the hell had happened to her brother. She certainly didn't believe the story that she'd been told. More calls were made to other members of the Corbett family to try and make sure people knew what had happened in case the story hit the news. Family in Ireland also frantically tried to get in contact with the Martins, Molly or her mother or her father, to find out exactly what had happened and to make sure that the two kids were okay. Tracy did manage to get a hold of Sharon Martins eventually. The conversation was stark and to the point. Sharon told Tracy that Jason had been out drinking all day. When he got home, he started a fight with Molly. He'd hit her and she'd pushed him to get away. According to Sharon, that's when Jason fell, hitting his head, causing the wounds he'd die of a short time later. When Tracy asked if Molly had been arrested, Sharon ended the call, chastising Tracy for even, dare, for even daring to ask such a question. Tracy wasn't done yet, though. This story didn't ring true to her. She knew her brother and sister-in-law were having difficulties, and it was totally unlike Jason to get violent or aggressive like that, or to drink to such an excess. She needed to know what had happened, and she needed to know her niece and nephew were safe. She texted Molly saying she'd contact everyone she knew in North Carolina to get information if she had to, and so, finally, Molly called her. Molly told Tracy the same story, through tears this time, and let Tracy speak to her nephew briefly before cutting off the call. Tracy went about making arrangements to get to North Carolina as soon as possible and made contact with the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs to try and get some diplomatic support for her family at this awful time. Flights were booked from France back to Ireland and then from Ireland to the US. The Corbett family arrived within hours of the killing. Suspicion in the Corbett family was raised even further when Molly rushed to cremate Jason within 24 hours of his death. Thankfully, that was stopped. But initially, she wouldn't even allow the family to see his body. She was next of kin, and therefore in charge of all the arrangements, and who had permission to do what. Molly didn't tell the Corbetts what funeral home Jason had been sent to, and when she heard the family had found out, she changed it, moving Jason to yet another mortuary. Molly decided to hold a memorial service rather than a funeral for her deceased husband, and Jason's family were not invited. They were finally granted a private viewing in the funeral home instead. In the end, Molly did agree to release Jason's body to the Corbett's in order for Jason to be buried in Limerick, on the condition that the family took on the full cost not only of the repatriation, but also any other fees, including the bill that came for the ambulance call-out on the night of Jason's death. Alongside this battle over Jason's broken body, there was a custody battle between Molly and the Martins family, 
and Tracy and the Corbett family over Jack and Sarah. Initially, the kids had been placed in the custody of the Department of Social Services of North Carolina, but shortly after, they were released to Molly. Within 30 hours of Jason's passing, Molly had filed for both guardianship and custody of Jack and Sarah, saying she was the only mother they'd known. Then Molly took them to the southern part of the state where she stayed with her brother in Charlotte. On the 3rd of August, the Department of Social Services had a court order made stating that Molly was not to take the kids out of state. Jason's sister was horrified. Not only did Molly have no legal tie to the children, Molly had been the one who killed the children's father, whichever version of the emerging story you believed. The entirety of Jason's family were terrified. They set themselves up for a long battle, hired their own family law attorney and got themselves set up with phones and computers so that they could try and help win back custody of the kids. While all of this was going on, the media descended. Not only was the story huge in North Carolina and then nationwide, but the Irish media became instantly obsessed with this complex story involving a Limerick man abroad. On the 14th of August 2015, the first hearing relating to the custody of the children took place in the Davidson County Courthouse, a modern building around the corner from the original historic courthouse building on Lexington's Main Street. The contents of Jason's will was read out. It was something that he had kept with his solicitor in Ireland. It named Dave Lynch, Tracy's husband, as the executor of the will, and gave guardianship of the two children to him and his wife if Jason should die while they were minors. Nowhere in the will was Molly mentioned. She, of course, had entitlements under North Carolina law to shared property in the marriage, but this was separate from the custody issues. A number of witnesses were called. One was Molly herself who said that the kids didn't want to leave her and that their rightful place was with her. A number of neighbours of Jason and Molly from Winston-Salem told the court what a fantastic mother Molly was and that they'd never seen any problems with her parenting. Molly herself told the court about her issues with mental health problems and said that they were behind her and that she hadn't been treated for any medical problems like that in the last number of years. Tracy gave evidence, and her motivations as to why she wanted the kids in her care were carefully scrutinised. Jason's childhood friend, Lynn, also spoke of what she had witnessed of the Corbett's relationship when she last visited the family with her own husband and children in the summer of 2013. Molly had said outright that she was unhappy in the relationship, but was staying for the sake of the children. According to Lynn, Molly said she was talking to an ex-boyfriend on social media and she said she knew Jason had also struck up an online friendship with another woman. Lynn said that, despite Molly's statements to the contrary, she could be harsh with the children, particularly Jason's son. Jack would get into trouble for any minor infringement of Molly's rules. There was one incident that Lynn described that had stuck in her memory from that trip from when the two families were out for a meal together. Jack had said something cheeky and Molly had reprimanded him. He shot back with the remark, You're not my real mother. This had apparently sent Molly into hysterics, screaming and crying, and Jason had to pull her aside 
to try and get her to calm down. After all the fuss, Jack was punished harshly for this. At the end of the contentious hearing, judgment was reserved for the clerk to consider his decision, but two days later, an order granting temporary custody to the lynches was made. Department of Social Services officials travelled to Charlotte to collect the children. Molly burst into tears as she was asked to pack bags for the two kids to be brought to their aunt and uncle, and the trip north again was emotional for the children too. They were confused and distraught while being transported by DSS staff. The order was made permanent the following day, with guardianship granted. Jack and Sarah's passports were held for another week, awaiting the results of the custody hearing. After that, Tracy and Dave were free to return to Ireland with the children. That is, so long as they weren't served with papers beginning more legal proceedings about the custody of the kids. Their lawyers and the Irish consulate helped the Corbetts in this regard. There were newly prepared passports awaiting the kids, and as soon as custody was awarded, they were all brought to Washington, D.C. to stay under assumed names to make it harder to serve papers if the Martins decided to go that route. Then they were put on a train to New York, and from there they flew direct to Shannon. On the 23rd of August, Jason's funeral mass was held in the local church of his childhood home, Our Lady Queen of Peace in Janesboro. According to the Irish Independent, in the months after Jason's death, and after the children had returned to Limerick, Molly uploaded a picture of Jack and Sarah daily to Facebook, each with her phone number and email, to show that she wanted the children to contact her. Other posts she made were critical of the Corbett family. One, posted on the 23rd of December 2015, read, quote, The bailiff at the courthouse told us your guardians loved America because they could get so many cigarettes for so much less money. Perhaps they decided cigarettes were more important than your teddy bears, or sweatshirts, or dolls, or games, end quote. After the children were brought back to Ireland, Molly gave an exclusive interview to the Irish Independent, possibly in the hopes that it would be seen by the Corbetts and the kids in Limerick. However, the Independent decided to adhere to our own broadcasting rules about ongoing criminal proceedings and withheld its content until after the trial was completed. She told the Independent, quote, I can't imagine that anyone would think that this was in their best interests to remove them from their mother and their home and their friends. I feel like they were treated like property, because they were Irish. They are human beings. They don't belong to a country. They belong with their mother, End quote. She also rang a radio station in Ireland and pleaded live on air for the kids to be allowed to call the only mother they'd ever known. Molly sobbed as she wished them happy birthdays. While Jack and Sarah were settled into their new routine in school and began to have counselling, trying to rebuild what they could of their childhoods with the help of their family, the Corbetts, and Tracy in particular, turned to the business of finding out what exactly had happened to their brother. The police were also interested in getting to the bottom of what had actually happened in the Corbetts' home that night. Initially, things had seemed like a straightforward case of self-defence, but when investigators looked at the scene in the bedroom, the damage done to Jason's body, 
and the photographs showing the Martins effectively unharmed and even relatively clean, they thought again. The master bedroom, hallway, and bathroom had been extensively photographed by police the morning of Jason's death, which was fortunate, as by August 4th, Molly had had a crime scene cleaning crew visit the house and it had been scrubbed. All traces of forensic evidence was, at that point, gone. But police were interested in more than the DNA that might have been left behind. There was really no question of who had been injured and died, and who had caused that death. They were after more of a how. How had Jason's death occurred? In an application to the court for a search warrant for the Panther Creek Court home, a detective outlined initial suspicions of what might have happened in the home that night. Firstly, the description of the struggle that they had from the Martins was not consistent with what was found at the scene. The sudden change of plans that day of Tom and Sharon was quote-unquote unusual behaviour for Tom Martins. He was not known to be the spontaneous sort. And on top of all that, there were issues about the baseball bat used in the attack. Police were informed that Mr. Martins had brought Jack a similar Little League bat the summer before, and police wanted to see if there was a second bat present in the house to see if what Tom Martins had told police lined up with the items at the scene. Warrants were also filed seeking access to banking records, email addresses, social media accounts and phone records of both Molly and Jason. It was discovered that Jason's laptop was missing from the home, as was his phone. Jewellery Jason had given Mags was also missing. He'd been holding on to those items to pass on to his daughter. Molly eventually returned the jewellery during an unrelated court hearing after Tracy Lynch filed suit against her for it. The car Jason had used, a Honda Accord, also went missing, but was later discovered to be with a Martins. Tom was driving it. Despite the fact that the Panther Creek Court home had been sealed by court order on the 17th of September as part of the proceedings relating to Jason's will and estate, Molly got permission to retrieve a number of personal items from the house. On the 21st of January, Tracy Lynch got a call from a neighbour in North Carolina to let her know that a number of trucks had pulled up outside the house and that it looked as if it was being entirely cleared out. Seven trucks and a number of movers had pulled every item from the house, leaving behind only a few pieces of furniture that had been shipped from Ireland and rubbish. According to Jason's sister, Molly was having the stuff brought down to Tennessee, where she intended on selling it. When Tracy found out about the moving vans, she contacted the Davidson courthouse. Molly told the court that all of the things that she was taking had been purchased with her credit card, but lawyers working for David Lynch as the executor of Jason's will pointed out that that credit card had been paid off through the Corbett's joint account, and most of the money in that account had come from Jason's salary. When questioned by the judge, Molly reckoned she had contributed no more than $5,000 to that account in the time that it was active, and so Judge Shipwash ordered that all of the items were to be removed to storage, where they would stay until all court proceedings had finished. On the 4th of January 2016, the criminal aspect of the court proceedings finally began. 
Molly and Tom Martins were both charged with second-degree murder and voluntary manslaughter relating to the death of Jason Corbett before a court in Lexington. After this hearing, both were released on bail, having lodged bonds of $190,000 each with the court. The first pre-trial hearings took place on the 8th and 9th of June 2017 in the Davidson County Supreme Court before Judge David Lee. The main issues for the court to consider were an application by both defence teams for a change of venue, the admissibility of statements from Jack and Sarah made in the immediate aftermath of their father's death, taken while in the custody of the Martins, and an allegation that Jason had played a role in the death of his first wife, Mags. All of the motions were dealt with quickly. The change of venue was denied, with the court agreeing with the prosecutors that the Martins had courted the press themselves, and with the knowledge that the alternate venue wasn't available anyway. The other two matters were left for the trial judge to decide. As it turned out, Judge David Lee would preside over the trial proper itself, and so on the 17th of July, the process of jury selection began in Davidson County. The media had gathered to watch the spectacle of a trial with unusual defendants and an international flavour. Little occurred in that first week, bar the dropping of the lesser voluntary manslaughter charges. However, Molly and Tom were also served with civil papers during that time for the wrongful death of Jason Corbett. The statute of limitations was coincidentally about to expire, just as their criminal trial began. According to Tracy Lynch, Jason's family also hoped that the prospect of a second complex legal issue would rattle the Martins somewhat. Finally, a jury of 12 were decided upon, nine women and three men, with two alternates, a man and a woman. In the US, a quorum of 12 is required, unlike in Ireland, and their decision would have to be unanimous. In North Carolina, there is no ability to reach a verdict by majority, like there is here. And so the case began then on Tuesday the 25th of July, with the opening statements of both the assistant district attorney and those of the defence teams who each set out their case. The state asserted that they would show, beyond a reasonable doubt, that Molly and her father Tom had beaten Jason Corbett to death in an unprovoked attack, whereas the defence teams both insisted that the Martins had acted in self-defence. The court heard the 911 call, placed around 3am on the 3rd of August 2015, where Tom Martins requested the help of the emergency services, saying he thought he might have killed his son-in-law. The 911 operator also told the court of her impression of the Martins on the phone line that night, that they both appeared to be calm, and neither Molly nor Tom appeared to be out of breath despite the fact she was talking them through administering CPR, and she would have expected this in light of the physical exertion. Next, a nurse from the medical centre where the Corbett's attended for primary care took the stand. Evidence was heard that Molly had been prescribed 50 milligrams of trazodone daily on the 30th of July by her doctor there, because she said she wasn't sleeping. Trazodone is an antidepressant medication that is particularly good at dealing with sleep issues. Next up was the pharmacist who filled that script for Molly 
at CVS on the 30th. The next day, the jury were shown photos of Jason's injuries taken during the post-mortem examination. The damage to Jason's skull was clearly visible and obviously catastrophic. The images were so gruesome that one member of the jury vomited while looking at the pictures. Dr. Craig Nelson from the Chief Medical Examiner's Office in North Carolina told the court how Jason's skull had been shattered during the assault, to the degree that it was impossible to say how many times he'd been struck. It must have been at least 12, possibly more. His skull had been shattered such that part of it fell away during the post-mortem examination, and yet other parts had been driven into the brain tissue during the assault. Such was its violence. Further, it was noted on the back of Jason's skull that some of the injuries to the head lacked evidence of bleeding, leading the pathologists to conclude that they had been inflicted after death had occurred. Dr. Nelson also outlined other injuries found on Jason's body. His nose was also broken, and he had injuries to his chest, legs, and arms. He told the court that there had been low levels of alcohol found in Jason's blood, along with the presence of the drug trazodone, which was also found in low amounts. Jason Corbett's time of death was recorded as 3.24am on the 3rd of August 2015, the time that paramedics at the scene had ceased attempts at life-saving treatment. An expert in pharmacology took to the stand to speak about the trazodone found in Jason's system. Mr. Patterson, from Carolina Clinical Health Services, said that this below-therapeutic level of trazodone found in Jason's system had a number of explanations, ranging from the possibility that only a small amount of the drug had been ingested to the potential time-lapse between when the dose was ingested and Jason's subsequent death. The first police officer on the scene described to the court what he had found when he arrived in the Corbett's house that morning. As he entered the house, a paramedic had stopped him and said, quote, It's bad in there, real bad. End quote. He found large amounts of blood on the floor, more on the bed, some in the hall, and in the bathroom of the first or ground floor of the house. A lot of what he saw seemed to be congealed, making him think that it hadn't been freshly spilled blood, but rather may have been exposed to the air for some time and had started to dry somewhat. The Martins were asked to leave the house while it was secured by police as a crime scene, and the officers noted the presence of a blood-stained metal bat and a blood-stained brick, again in the main bedroom. The children, who had been asleep in their rooms on the top floor of the house, were carried downstairs by officers who covered their eyes so that they wouldn't see the bloody mess left by the struggle. The paramedics who were first on the scene also gave evidence. They told the court that upon entering the house they found Jason lying naked on the floor of the master bedroom, in a pool of blood. It was hard to see and so a decision was taken to move him from the bedroom floor onto a stretcher and out to the ambulance so that they could assess and attempt to treat him. Both medics said that they were startled to discover that Jason was already cool to the touch when they went to move him. 
He also had obvious injuries to his head and face, and the damage to the back of his skull was catastrophic. The first responders were not able to feel any heartbeat from Jason, and they weren't able to get a beating again. At 3.34, they decided that there was nothing more to be done for him and stopped their work. Both Tom and Molly Martins had refused to be seen at the local hospital, though, again, both paramedics were in agreement that it did not appear that they were injured. Molly had a redness to her neck, and she rubbed at it in a scrubbing motion every few minutes. In pictures taken at the police station hours after the killing, neither Molly nor Tom show any sign of injury to themselves. There are no marks, cuts, or bruises on either of them. The prosecution pointed out how unlikely this seemed, given that Jason was a big man. He was six foot tall and 16 stone in weight. That's 225 pounds, or about 100 kilos. In fact, Molly is pictured still wearing a thin bracelet around her wrist, which was miraculously not damaged at all in the fight she described. However, both of the Martins had blood on their clothing and a few smudges on their skin. Neither had any amount on their hands, though, and there hadn't been any there either when the paramedics arrived, despite the apparent attempt at CPR and mouth-to-mouth. Then neighbour David Fritz told the court about his interactions with Jason on the 2nd of August. They were next-door neighbours and friends, and he was the one who had helped Jason finish mowing his lawn as they'd both been out at the same time that day. David's lawn was a bit smaller, so he'd pitched in. Afterwards, they'd had a few beers. He remembered that at about 8pm, Tom and Sharon Martins had arrived unexpectedly and then David and his wife had headed out to get some dinner. He'd had no contact with the Corbetts again until 5.50 the next morning, when police knocked on the door and asked if Molly could use their bathroom. David said he'd seen the police and paramedics activity in the Corbett house two hours before, but thought it was best if he stayed out of the way of whatever was going on over there. Lieutenant Frank Young then presented forensic evidence. The black baseball bat and a paving brick found in the Corbett house were shown to the court. Both were found in the master bedroom, both had had Jason's blood on them, and both had been dusted for fingerprints. The lieutenant described how he had taken photos of the scene when he was called out there, early on the morning of the 3rd. He went over all of the rooms that had been covered in blood, and the items he saw in them. Young also described dents he'd found in the wall, made when the baseball bat had impacted there during the course of the attack. He had also photographed Molly and Tom. He took a number of pictures of Molly's neck, which he had asked her repeatedly to stop rubbing and tugging at, and he found no visible injuries at that point. There was blood on her face, but it wasn't hers. After that, crime lab experts told the court that although traces of fingerprints were found on the weapons that had inflicted Jason's fatal wounds, none were such that they could be identified. Most of the hair that was found on the scene was Jason's, excepting one long blonde hair that was likely Molly's. 
Dr. Stuart James was also called to the stand. He is a blood spatter expert, now of making a murderer fame, where he can be seen dripping synthetic blood on all manner of surfaces. He had examined the crime scene photographs and the clothing that had been collected from Tom and Molly Martins that night. Dr. James determined that there was evidence of what he called an impact incident, left on the bedclothes of Jason's bed, and that given how far the blood had soaked through the fabric there, it was possible that this was where the attack had began. There were multiple stains and splashes of blood on the bedroom walls, ranging from close to the floor to about five feet above it. It appeared that Jason's head had hit off the wall at some point, and the rest of the blood had transferred as Jason fell to the floor and as cast off from the weapons. Further, the bloodstains found on the inside of Tom Martin's boxer shorts were determined not to be from the blood soaking through the fabric, but rather they had landed on the inside surface of the shorts while the blood was travelling upwards. Likely, Tom had been positioned above Jason when that blood was deposited. There was blood and tissue from Jason's head found on the outer side of the boxers, again indicating that they had been close to Jason when his head was struck, and that the shorts had been positioned above his head when the blows occurred, depositing those samples there. Molly Martins had voluntarily spoken to the police the morning of Jason's death, and had signed a written statement. It was entered into evidence and passed through the jury box. In that initial police statement, Molly had said that she had had the paving brick on the nightstand and hit Jason with it in the course of the struggle. The brick was later found in the master bedroom, soaked in Jason's blood, and sitting on the floor, next to the Little League Louisville slugger. The presence of this brick went unexplained in the court. Molly had made further statements that she was keeping it there because she and the kids were painting bricks and they'd taken that one inside to keep it dry before their art project. But the prosecutors didn't draw attention to that fact, and no evidence would be presented by Miss Martin's defence to account for its presence in the room that night. Tracy Corbett Lynch was called to give evidence about her brother's prior marriage to Mags, her death, and how Jason had decided to hire an au pair to look after the kids. She described the beginnings of his relationship with Molly and then how they had moved to the US and had married. She also told the court about her conversations with Jason in the months and weeks before his death regarding his move back to Ireland with the kids. After that, there was one final witness for the prosecution, a co-worker of Jason's who had met Molly two days after Jason's death. Molly had called by Jason's office to collect his personal items. Melanie Crook said she'd met Molly in the lobby of the packaging plant. At the time, she didn't know the circumstances of her colleague's passing. Melanie handed over the box after giving Molly a hug and expressing her condolences. Ms. Crook told the court that on that day, Molly was wearing a t-shirt with a low, boat-neck-type collar and jeans. Melanie saw no marks, bruises, or swelling around Molly's neck. She didn't appear injured at all. When the prosecution rested, the defence teams for both Molly and Tom asked for the case against their clients to be struck out, arguing that there was no evidence presented that refuted the Martin story 
that this was a case of self-defence or that the two had acted with malice in the killing. Of course, the prosecution disagreed with this, stating that the injuries sustained by Jason and the lack of injuries sustained by Tom or Molly supported their case that this had been murder. Judge Lee sided with the state and denied the motion for dismissal. And so, on the 13th day of testimony in the trial, Tom Martins found himself in the witness box. He had decided to put forward his version of the events of that night in August 2015 in the hopes that the jury would believe him, and, as a consequence, his daughter too. Tom Martins started off by outlining his background. He was a former FBI agent and now worked in counterintelligence for the Department of Energy. Then he moved on to the events of the 2nd of August. He told the court that initially he and his wife were to have dinner with friends that evening, but when their plans were cancelled, the Martins decided to make the five and a half hour drive north to Winston-Salem. He and Sharon left their bags in the basement guest room, including gifts they'd brought for Jack and Sarah, a tennis racket and a small baseball bat. Tom said when he arrived, Jason was drunk. He'd been sitting drinking beers with his neighbour, but Jason got up out of the deck chair and welcomed the couple to the house. Then Tom described waking up in the early hours of the 3rd of August, and the struggle between himself and Jason, and how he had felt that both he and his daughter's lives were in danger. His story was the same as the one he'd told police the night of the killing, and the next morning when he had made his police statement. In fact, Never once did Tom or Molly's story about what had happened that night change. Tom Martins also fielded questions about insurance policies Molly was the beneficiary of, and the value of the house, which was mortgage-free. An associate of Tom's who worked in the Department of Homeland Security gave a positive report of Tom's character, and then the defence concluded. Molly Martins would not be taking the stat. There was only one outstanding matter to be dealt with before the closing speeches, and that was whether or not Jack and Sarah's statements made just after the death of their father would be allowed into evidence. Given that they were abroad in Ireland, they were beyond the subpoena power of the North Carolina court. All that was available for their accounts of what had happened were these statements. They were recorded and the questions had been put to the kids by a social worker. In the footage that was released and played on 2020, Jack is shown sitting on one side of a small round table with the social worker sitting across from him and taking notes. She asked the boy what would happen when his dad got angry. Jack responded, stumbling over the words, quote, he would physically, physically and verbally hurt my mom, end quote. When asked for more details about how his dad would hurt his mom, he listed them out punching, hitting and pushing. Court documents filed in advance of the pre-trial hearing also outlined that Sarah had told a similar story and said that her dad would start arguments with Molly for, quote, ridiculous reasons, end quote, that she'd seen him pull Molly's hair and hit her in the face. But again, in a recorded interview this time in Ireland, Jack said that what he had said in the interviews in North Carolina were coached stories. In this second statement made in Ireland, he said that there had been no hitting or violence in his home. Judge Lee had considered the matter 
since he first heard the submissions in the pretrial hearings and decided that given that there were other statements recanting the content of the original interviews, he ruled that all of the statements were inadmissible. Finally, the closing speeches began. The prosecution underlined the violence of the repeated blows Jason had endured when the assistant district attorney struck his desk repeatedly with the baseball bat. He said that not only had the attack been unprovoked and brutal, with blows delivered even after Jason lay prone on the floor, but the Martins had then waited to call 911, leaving Jason to lie on the floor unaided and die alone. Neither of the Martins had any wounds to indicate that there had been a struggle, which surely would have occurred if the 220-pound Jason had been an active participant in the fight. The defence pointed to Tom's background in law enforcement and said he was only acting to protect his daughter, an instinct he had nurtured throughout his career in the FBI while protecting the very country itself. On top of that, it was argued that Molly had nothing to gain from Jason's death. She had not been named in his will. Their lawyer also said that Molly had not been properly examined for petechia or bruising around her neck in the aftermath of the alleged attack against her. Notably, what was missing from the closing statement, and in fact the entire defence case, was any accusation that Jason had been abusive towards Molly. It was something that she had alleged in the past, publicly even, and if it could be established at trial, would have definitely aided in her defence, but without the children's interviews, the allegations never made it into evidence, and it seemed that her lawyers felt that Molly's case was best served by her exercising her right to stay off the witness stand. After that, Judge Lee summed up and gave his instructions to the jury, and on Tuesday the 8th of August at 3.22pm, they were sent out to begin their deliberations. The next morning, before noon, the jury was in. Tom and Molly Martins were both found guilty of second-degree murder. Molly Martins collapsed to the floor in tears as she heard the news, and as she was being handcuffed by the bailiffs, she said to her mother, quote, I'm really sorry, Mom. I wish he'd just killed me, end quote. After adjourning for only 15 minutes, the court resumed for the purposes of sentencing. Three victim impact statements were read, one from Rita Corbett, Jason's mother, and another on behalf of the whole Corbett family. Those were read by Tracy Corbett Lynch. Then the prosecutor read a handwritten note prepared by Jack. Tom Martins had nothing to say as a 20-year minimum sentence was imposed on him, but Molly Martins took the opportunity to speak in court for the first time before her sentence was handed down. She told the court she hadn't murdered Jason, nor had her father. She said Jason was abusive, and he had been killed in the midst of a violent argument, like many other the two had had, only this time there was someone there to defend her. Judge Lee then told the court that she too would serve a minimum of 20 years in prison, and the two were led away. An appeal was almost immediately lodged and centred around an allegation of juror misconduct. The motion that was filed just days after the conclusion of the trial alleged that jurors gave press interviews and posted on social media while the trial was ongoing, 
based on the content of social media posts and interviews made after the verdict. Another allegation, according to The Independent, involved a meeting between two jurors in a private vehicle after the first day of deliberations had finished. The two had apparently met in a car for 10 to 15 minutes. The district attorney's office responded with detailed submissions refuting this. The first court that would deal with the case on appeal was the very one in which the trial had occurred, the Davidson County Superior Court. On the 1st of December 2017, Judge Lee rejected the defence submissions and refused to overturn the verdicts. The Martins' next appeal was heard in the North Carolina Court of Appeal in late January of this year, 2019. Both defence attorneys argued that the state had not refuted their clients' claims of self-defence and said that there were other decisions made by the trial judge that had rendered the proceedings unfair, such as not allowing into evidence the statements of Jack and Sarah made in North Carolina. Again, there were also allegations of misconduct by members of the jury relating to both the influence of social media throughout the five-week trial and in light of comments after the trial that seemed to imply that certain jurors discussed the trial itself while it was ongoing and before deliberations had begun. Another aspect of the appeal was Judge Lee's decision not to allow a statement made by Mr. Martins into evidence regarding a conversation that he had with some point with Mr. Fitzpatrick, the father of Jason Corbett's first wife, which recounted, according to Martins, a conversation that the two men had had. Mr. Martin said that Mr. Fitzpatrick told him that Jason was somehow responsible for his daughter's death. Tom Martin's lawyer was arguing that the statement was relevant to his client's state of mind at the time of Jason's killing, and that it would go towards showing that Tom had a genuine fear for his own daughter's life. Special Attorney General Mike Dodds said that the trial had been fair and proper and that the only thing approaching unusual about it was that the grand jury had returned with the lesser indictment of second-degree murder. He said that there was a clear argument that the murder of Jason Corbett had in fact been premeditated and would have qualified for this charge. This would have made it a death penalty case. No judgment from the three-judge panel has yet been issued, even after the Lynches and Corbetts approached the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs over the summer in order to try and get some sort of an explanation for such a long delay in the ruling. Both Molly and Tom Martins have made it clear that they will exhaust all appeals available to them, in the hopes of overturning their convictions for Jason's murder. In March of 2019, after a long period of mediation, a settlement was agreed in the wrongful death suit taken against Tom and Molly Martins, by the Lynch Corbett's on behalf of the two children. Molly Martins was dropped from the suit, and neither of the Martins made any admission of liability. However, Molly agreed she would not collect on the $600,000 life insurance policy taken out by Jason that had named her as the sole beneficiary, and her father settled for a total of $180,000. The money will be held in trust for the two children. An independent trustee has now been appointed, and David Lynch can now finally settle the remainder of Jason's estate. Yet another legal battle was fought by Tracy Corbett Lynch on behalf of her brother's children, though. 
she campaigned to have pictures of Jack and Sarah shared by Molly Martin in posts on Facebook, many of which related to the miscarriage of justice she alleged against her conviction for the murder of the children's father. Between August 2015 and May 2017, a hundred Facebook posts were made relating to the children by Molly and other members of the Martins' family. Eventually, in June of 2018, Molly Martin's Facebook page was disabled by the social media company and the pictures removed, but Tracy quickly realised her success there meant nothing. The same pictures were just shared again and again by friends, family and those involved in the Martins' campaign for freedom. Tracy told Ralph Regal of the Irish Independent, quote, It's like trying to fight a ghost. Just when we thought it was over, it starts up all over again. And unfortunately for the Corbetts, the issue of social media posts is not the only one that is likely to seem unending. The Martins have made it clear that they will be pursuing the appeal process to the full, and so it might be many years yet before there is closure on that front. Until then, the Corbetts have to live with the rumours and innuendo now attached to their brother, that he was violent and therefore somehow responsible for his own death. But whatever interviews or Facebook posts might say, seems clear that the person with a history of erratic behaviour was in fact Molly Martins. If there was any abuse in the relationship, she seems to have been the source, through emotional abuse and manipulation. The kind of thing we don't talk about. The abuse of men in domestic relationships. Molly made demands and threats to get her way. She undermined Jason both in their relationship and with his kids. Molly's first obsession, her first mission, was the marriage to Jason. Then it was the move and then she moved on to the adoption of the kids. But that was something Jason wouldn't budge on, and when it looked like he might leave, Jason was found dead on his own bedroom floor. But these tactics, which worked so well in her private life, would be useless against the skills of the police investigators, the district attorney's office, and the justice system. They looked at the evidence and saw right through Molly Martins. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. Don't forget, if you like us, subscribe and leave a review. Or better yet, tell a friend. That really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Joe Westwood, Letty May, Shane Kelly, Kate DeBrune, Sophie-Anne Naser, Leah Kenny, and Claire Barnes. You guys are all so incredibly generous. Thank you so much, guys. Patrons get ad-free and early release episodes as well as bonus content and nifty merch. There's something for everyone so do check it out. Also, a huge thank you again to this week's sponsor, HelloFresh. Remember to head to hellofresh.co.uk and enter the code MENSREA at checkout to get £60 off. Supporting our sponsors also supports this show and keeps the episodes coming, so show them some love and get an awesome discount while you're at it. 
Our theme music is Quinsong The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host Sinead. This episode was made possible both by Tracy Corbett Lynch's book, My Brother Jason, and the reporting in the Irish Independent by Ralph Regal, who attended the trial in North Carolina. All sources for today's episode can be found as usual in the show notes, or head to the website www.mensreapod.com. And till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. (laughs) ¶¶